Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm focused on wealth taxation with Arun Advani, a professor of economics and research director at the University of Warwick and a commissioner of the UK's Wealth Tax Commission. Late last year, that commission published a report calling for a one-time wealth tax. Not only could such a tax generate significant revenue, the report also found that a one-off wealth tax would be economically efficient and that since it is based on wealth at a past point in time, a one-off wealth tax does not distort behavior. Now, having read the UK Commission's report and a considerable amount of other research on the subject, I then consulted tax economist Sarah Perret on a previous episode of Uncommons, and then got to work on a motion to address wealth inequality. My motion calls for a one-time tax on extreme wealth, 3% on net wealth over $10 million, and 5% on net wealth over $20 million. In addition, the motion calls for new tax measures on transfers of extreme wealth, including an inheritance tax on estates valued at over $5 million, and changes in the tax treatment of investment income to ensure that it is treated more equitably in relation to employment income earned by working Canadians. After having drafted that motion, I, I then asked the Library of Parliament to crunch the numbers for me. And with a 10% discount for non-compliance, the Library estimates such a one-time tax would bring in almost $70 billion. Interestingly, this figure is similar to our promised Inclusive Recovery Fund, which the fall economic statement set at 70 to $100 billion over three years. So perhaps we could ask those with extreme wealth in our society to pay for our national recovery, an idea that is both fair and efficient. Now, all of that's to say that Professor Advani's research has had a significant influence on my own parliamentary work on this issue, and he joins me on this episode to discuss the UK Wealth Tax Commission report different ways to think about taxing wealth, and what he thinks of the motion I've proposed in Parliament. Arun, thanks so much for joining me. Ah, great to see you. You are one of three co-chairs of the UK Wealth Tax Commission, and I'm very interested in its recent report. But first, for those who are less familiar here in Canada, what is the UK Wealth Tax Commission and what motivated its creation? There's three of us, me, uh, Andy Summers, who's an academic lawyer at the LSE, and Emma Chamberlain, who's a practicing barrister uh, in the UK, uh, working on sort of working with the wealthy. Uh, and it was set up, the, the Wealth Tax Commission was set up basically because quite early on in the pandemic, sort of April, May-ish, there were a bunch of newspaper articles in the UK thinking about the idea uh, that we might want a wealth tax to pay for the, for the pandemic. And, you know, Andy and I have worked together for a long time. We work on uh, basically tax among mainly among the rich and thinking about how you should structure taxes how you should think about these things and we kind of had a conversation where we said you know do we think this is a good idea do we think this is going to work how would you do it and we said we're, we're two experts in this area in some sense uh, we know more than most people to be fair and we have no idea whether this is a good idea and the reason we have no idea if this is a good idea is a last serious study of a wealth tax in the uk was done in the late 1970s so you know, more than 40 years out of date uh, obviously a great piece of work in its time but you know the world has changed. The mobility of people, the mobility of money has changed. What uh, things tax authorities can do has changed the information they have access to. The world is really a different place to, to 40, 50 years ago. We can't possibly base the idea of potentially having a wealth tax on something that far out of date. Uh, and so we, uh, with Emma, set up the, the Wealth Tax Commission um, to study the idea of whether a wealth tax uh, for the UK would be a good idea. And it was structured in a way that meant that lots of the evidence we were collecting, a lot of the work we've put out, uh, is very general and not specific to the UK, so it, we hope it will have relevance for other countries. Uh, and then our final report was very specifically, in some sense, for the UK because we put together lots of numbers for you know, how much would you raise in the UK, what would it do in the UK, 
Um, but, but you know, as I say, the, the wider project was to understand how wealth taxes function, what they can and can't do now, what the best evidence is on how much people respond uh, to wealth taxes, which is always one of the worries. Uh, and just to sort of like understand that uh, in the big picture. And the, the structure was to have uh, me and Andy as academics, Emma as, a, as a, someone who's in practice and really works on these things in the day-to-day. -day, so it's not head in the clouds, ivory tower stuff. Um, and then again, you know, the contributors for evidence, uh, you know, people from the OECD. So you had Sarah Perret on here uh, from the OECD who contributed a piece. The Institute for Government uh, in the UK obviously is an expert in governmental work and they, they talked about how a government could deliver it um, at a more um, practical level for, for the work we were doing on thinking about how to administer the tax. The former head of HMRC was involved in thinking about how you would administer the wealth tax. Uh, so it was really kind of practical people uh, as well as academics uh, putting together this idea of how you would build a wealth tax if you wanted to do one. And you mentioned the UK context, but that the advice was intended to be general enough that those of us around the world and other countries could potentially take advantage. I personally have found it invaluable. I, I thought it was really useful reading, not only the final report, but also the modeling and also the background reports from other contributors. And, and you mentioned Sarah Perret as one. What were the findings in the end? So there were uh, kind of the key recommendation that got a lot of coverage in the UK was the idea that we called for a one-off wealth tax uh, as a as a way of kind of paying uh, for some of the costs that might incur might occur after the uh, worst parts of the health crisis that you know we're all facing around the world uh, as they recede and we start thinking about the economic crisis. If governments are looking to raise money, something like a one-off wealth tax is much better than the alternatives. We can talk a bit about why that is. We also talked a bit about uh, annual wealth taxes. That was a big part of what we had set out to, to think about. Actually, probably where we started was more thinking about the annual wealth taxes. And I think there the, the picture is more mixed. It depends partly what your goal is, and it partly depends on the current structure of taxes in your country. So for the UK, we have uh, taxation on the return of uh, returns on wealth. Uh, so that's both uh, income from wealth, you know, when dividends, for example, uh, and also capital gains. And we tax both those things. Uh, we also have taxes on the transfers of wealth, so inheritance tax. Uh, and there are big problems with all of those things. And we think that, you know, thinking about the legislative, legislative time it would take to implement a wealth tax, thinking out the practical costs of implementing a wealth tax, we thought that in the UK, it did not make sense to spend time trying to implement an annual wealth tax when there are easier wins fixing those existing problems. And so we focused very much on that. Uh, it, we said, you know, depending on what your goals are, if what you your goal is specifically is uh, redistribution and redistribution of wealth from the very wealthy, uh, then fixing those things alone will not be enough. You will need to go further. Um, but that's a sort of open question. You know, for us, our aim was not to say, here's what your goals ought to be and here's how you implement them. It was to say, you tell us your goals and they'll tell us what, from an academic and a practical standpoint, you could achieve. And then, you, you know, you decide what you'd like out of that because it's not for us to tell the public or politicians what they should want. It's for us to help them best achieve whatever the goals they state they have. In Canada, the conversation around annual wealth taxes I wouldn't say has been particularly detailed or expansive. We had a, a motion from an opposition party, the NDP, on a 1% tax on assets over $20 million. And we have had some academics weigh in. There's a public finance economist, Robin Bodway, who weighed in to suggest that this is going to be difficult to accomplish and an annual wealth tax doesn't make a great deal of sense. But I've been exchanged some emails with him. He's very much supportive of a, of a one-time wealth tax. And so it does seem to me that conclusion of in the short term, rather than pursuing a new annual wealth tax that is going to be very complex and difficult to implement, that it, it may well be easier to address a one-off wealth tax and then to pursue 
treating investment income more equitably to employment income. And in Canada, an inheritance tax, we don't have one like you have in the UK. And I want to get to those three kind of categories of thoughts. But as it relates to a one-off wealth tax, walk me through the design and implementation and why it is so much easier. Yeah. So in fact, let me start even before we talk about design. Let me tell you a little bit about why we thought it was such a good idea. Sure. Um, and I think it's partly, we, so we did some work on um, public attitudes and trying to understand what the public want, because there's often discussions of wealth taxes. I think, as you say, you highlighted some of the people who've been calling for, for wealth taxes. And I think instinctively, some of the public are very for them and some of them are very against. And I think not, we, we thought what we wanted to start was not to ask people, do you think a wealth tax is a brilliant idea? But more to understand from people what it is they want from the tax system, what they think it ought to be achieving. And then to say, you know, is a wealth tax helping you or not helping you with those goals? And so what we got from, from people were a set of principles of things they would like. What they would like is the people who have the poorest shoulders should bear more of the burden. We got the people want a tax system that's efficient, that doesn't you know, create distortions and doesn't create, I mean, they don't say it in quite these words, but you know, that, that doesn't make it harder for people to kind of get on and work and get on and spend money uh, doing normal things. But that you know, in an inefficient way, but in an equitable way, raises money and minimizes avoidance. And so what we set out was to say, well, how can a, could a wealth tax help achieve those goals? Is it, and could it achieve those goals better than alternatives? So one-time wealth tax can achieve those goals better than alternatives can. It can raise substantial amounts of revenue. Um, there's a lot of choice over how much uh, equity there is in it because you could have anything from you know, one end. You know, we, we, we gave a whole range of uh, options and we have a simulator online that people can use. But what we gave was you know, the, the two headline numbers that people picked most were um, raising a tax that started at half a million uh, pounds, which is basically the, t- the top one in six adults. So quite a, share, a reasonable share of the population would be affected by that. And from that, we were raising something like 260 uh, billion pounds. We raised that over five years. And the other one we said, you know, you could, you could say, for example, go for the top 1% of adults, so much narrower share, and you can get the money from them and you'd get something like 80 billion over five years, uh, so 16 billion pounds a year. Um, and so we, we had those kind of options of things we could do. And so there's, there's a lot of choice on equity. In terms of the efficiency goals, it's much more effective than uh, alternative ways of raising money in the short term, where you would say re- increase income tax or increase sales tax, VAT type options, because all of those things create you know, important distortions. And at a time when you know, countries' economies are really struggling, we've all you know, had lots of people unemployed or on, you know, in the UK on furlough, I guess there's various schemes in different countries, um, but people clearly not being able to do their normal work. What you don't want is to come out of the pandemic and then say, oh, by the way, now we're whacking up taxes on the majority of people. And by the way, that's going to make it really hard for people who've really struggled, who've had a really bad time in this crisis, to now try to find a job. You know, we've got a lot of young people in the UK who are unemployed, who are unable to get into work or find themselves un- losing their jobs. And we don't want to then suddenly say, okay, and by the way, we're increasing income taxes, making it harder for you to get in. So that's clearly not going to be the short-term solution. It would, it would be a bad short-term solution. And so we think in that sense, a one-time wealth tax would be a better option uh, as a way to, to kind of deal with this. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we then spent a lot of time, Emma, as I say, is a, is a barrister and spends a lot of time thinking out the practical implementation of these things. And so we spent a lot of time drafting the, the process very carefully so that we could minimize, in fact, essentially rule out uh, any kind of legitimate legal avoidance. Uh, clearly, of course, as ever, people can just misreport uh, and there, there are penalties for that. Um, but that, that's always something that you have to accept, I think. It's helpful then to, to frame that with the backdrop of here are the motivating goals in the context of the pandemic. And here's why we might conceive of a, a one-off, a credibly one-off wealth tax as a component of raising revenue to help pay for the pandemic response or to help pay for building back from the pandemic. When you 
look at the design of that one-off wealth tax and the implementation of it, the you mentioned there are some equity concerns that come into play as far as the design of it goes and, and the various rates. And I know as co-chairs, you didn't take a strong view on rates and you were more looking at the general design of it. But for a policymaker like me, who's very interested in this, what are some key considerations I should be thinking through as it relates to in implementing um, in implementing a, a credibly one-off wealth tax? So one thing we all felt very strongly about, and I think actually almost all the contributors uh, to the project agreed with, and it's one of the politically most difficult things, is to not rule out any asset classes. So there's always a, a desire for some groups to tell you either, you know, homeowners you couldn't possibly tax off. It's very unfair to tax us for our homes. So please take our homes out of the uh, tax. Uh, business people, of course, tell you that their businesses are really important. They're essential. You couldn't possibly tax their businesses. Uh, and of course, pensioners will tell you, you know, they've saved for a long time for pensions. There are all kinds of uh, things that they're already in the tax system that are designed to try and encourage people to put more into pensions. You couldn't possibly tax their pensions. And so ultimately, the collection of people will all come to you and tell you why you couldn't possibly tax anything at all, except possibly what they have in their small savings account somewhere. Uh, it's going to raise you essentially zero money. And so it's a bad idea for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, clearly, uh, as you can tell from my way of describing it, this is, this is just ruling out the entire tax base. There's no, there's no money left if you're going to rule everything out. Um, it comes to a sort of wider concern, which is sometimes people have that, that idea of rule certain things out because what they're worried about is taxing sort of normal people or normal levels of wealth. And I think what that speaks to is more what you should do is to set your threshold high enough that you're no, no longer worried about doing that. And I don't know what that threshold is, and that's clearly different people will have different views on it. Um, but if the worry is sort of you don't want to tax ordinary people in some sense, you have to think about, one, is that are you happy to not tax ordinary people? And if so, set a threshold high enough. I mean, it's also worth remembering the alternatives are often taxes that will be on ordinary people. So a wealth tax that taxes ordinary people may still be better because it's getting also money from the very top than, say, an income tax, which is taxing ordinary people and so is often less good at getting people at the very top. Um, so if that's, if that's your concern, you still probably want to do this. Um, but the other reason it's really important is there's a horizontal equity issues. So often we think about the sort of vertical equity issue of comparing uh, sort of rich people to poor people. But there's also this fact that you know you think of somebody who's just managed to buy a house compared to somebody who's saving and hasn't yet managed to buy. It's clearly not a great idea to say, well, you haven't yet got around to buying a house, you didn't manage to buy it yet, so we're going to tax those savings you've got in a bank account. But the person who managed to buy already, they're not getting taxed. Or saying, you know, we're going to exclude uh, pensions because people are saving hard on them. But the businesswoman who's been working really hard and said, I'm not putting money separately in a pension because I keep my money in my business. That is my pension. I'll sell it one day when I retire. Well, you're now taxing her. Or vice versa. You tax the person who's a civil servant and has, has, has their pension. You're not taxing the business owner who's kept all their money on the inside and often has lower tax rates for other parts of their income anyway. So you really just want to include the whole lot. If you're, if you're thinking about a wealth tax, you really want it to be a tax on all wealth and to think about what the rates and the thresholds are as a way of dealing with those kind of worries that people often have of, you know, you're taxing ordinary people, you're taxing too high a rate. Well, if you establish this commission to have some influence on people in elected office. I don't know what influence you have had in the UK and we can get to that, but at least here in Canada with this single office here in Beaches East York, you've had some influence where I took your report and I tried to put it into th a three-part motion that I have given notice in, in the house and plan to table shortly. But the, the first component is a one-time tax on extreme wealth, including uh, a 1% tax on assets over 5 million, a 3% tax on assets over 10 million and a 5% tax on assets over $20 million. Does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in some sense a lower set of rates than uh, the, the main headline ones that most people are quoting from us. And we, we gave a range. We didn't have any kind of hard number of what you'd have, but we had a 5% tax sort of across the board. So in a sense, you're being mild on that by having lower rates uh, at, at levels that are still relatively high up the wealth distribution. Like what tax rate you want depends on how much money you're trying to raise and over what period. I mean, I think to remember also just to, to be very clear with for the listeners, when we describe it as a one-time wealth tax, we mean that we're going to value wealth at a single point in time. And that's really important because if we value wealth at some point in time, you know, I, I, the, the finance minister gets up and says, we're, we're doing a wealth tax and it happens based on your wealth as of this morning. It's too late. You can't change anything. That's what you want to do. Then people, you don't create the inefficiencies of people trying to move money around, trying to do anything clever to get out of the wealth tax. You can't. It's too late. And so it's really important that the value is taken at one point in time. It's not important that the payment happens all at one point in time. So even something where we where we talked about, for example, a 5% wealth tax, we weren't expecting that people would then pay up 5% of their wealth in a single year. We expected it would come in over, over say, five years with a system that would allow people who would be particularly, uh, find it particularly difficult to pay in, in over five years even to pay over a longer period. We, we did some modeling to work out how, much, how many people that would be, how long that would be for the extra revenue. Uh, it wasn't hugely substantial, but there was some money that would come in a bit later. Um, but payment can still come in over a longer period. So in a sense, the, the setting of the threshold is just set, uh, of, of the sorry rate is setting up how much money in total will be owed at some point in time. Um, but it's not necessarily setting that that money has to come up out that quickly. So it can be come in, it can come in over some period. Something like that sounds like it'd be quite manageable. It sounded like it would be quite manageable. It also was certainly more ambitious than the 1% tax on wealth over $20 million. Not quite as ambitious as the 5% tax on assets over 2 million pounds, which would be about three and a half million Canadian dollars. And so this is a graduated proposal mm -hmm. and, and really hits the top end much harder. And the parliamentary budget officer here in Canada has given me a provisional analysis that says it would raise $70 billion, which in our country at the federal level, at least pre-pandemic, the budget was $350 billion. And interestingly, just it worked out this way. But interestingly, the finance minister in the fall economic statement fairly recently proposed a 70 to $100 billion building back better fund over three years. And that marries quite nicely in some ways. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's kind of nice. I mean, it was one of those things that, I mean, in a similar way for us, when we were modeling things, we sort of set this sort of five-year payment period we thought of. 1% is a kind of simple round number. So it wasn't at all a recommendation, but it was an easy number for people to get their heads around. Uh, and we set that, and we, we started with half a million again as a round number uh, threshold for individual wealth. Uh, and I said that's the top one in six in the UK. So that's quite a large uh, share of the population. Uh, and doing that, we were basically covering, com coming up with the number that happened to be already in the headlines is how much money the cost of COVID had been kind of at that point in time. Clearly, things have got worse since then, uh, and the cost has gone up. And then, I mean, this is also just to say, you, you don't have to think uh, that uh, government debt will need to be paid off or anything like that to think that this could be a good idea. This is really right, exactly. is, is conditional on the idea that governments will want to raise money. That's not necessarily they want to pay down the existing debt or anything like that. There just will be things that governments will want to do. Uh, and if they're thinking about raising money after this, then that's the way to do it. You know, Some governments will say, look, we can just borrow freely and we don't have to worry about anything. If they want to say that, that's fine. But if the view is that there are taxes that need raising, clearly income taxes are going to make it hard to get people into jobs sales taxes or VAT uh, are going to make it more expensive for people to spend money into that. That hurts small businesses again. You, know, you, you, you want your customers to come to you and buy stuff. If stuff gets more expensive, they're not going to do it as much. So anything you do that raises a fixed amount of money is going to take that much money out of the private citizen's hands and put it into government's hands. And that's sort of by definition what you're trying to do. The upside of a one-off wealth tax relative to the other options that people have in practice 
is it's not at the same time also distorting their decisions, making it more expensive for them to hire people or more expensive for them to spend money. And that's really kind of the key, the key thing that uh, makes a one-off wealth tax much more attractive than the other things that people normally think of to raise large amounts of money. And I'm interested in the political response in the United Kingdom because in my conversations about wealth taxation here in Canada, there, as I say, are some mixed views, certainly left-leaning, politically involved people say we absolutely need one and point to rising extreme wealth inequality. And, and that's an important issue that we need to tackle to the point that in a recent throne speech in, in the in a recent throne speech in September, our government said we're going to look to additional ways to tax extreme wealth inequality, identified that as an, as an important priority, identified closing a stock option loophole, taxing big tech in because they don't pay taxes in our jurisdiction, mm -hmm. but they earn revenue here from Canadians. So they put a couple of proposals on the table, but I was trying to think through what are some other ways that we, we could address this, this question. And, and a, and a one-off wealth tax seems more feasible politically in some ways in that it has broader support from economists, but it has broader support also, I think, from, from people across the political spectrum. But I, but I wonder what the response has been with a conservative government and, and, and with political actors in the UK. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, as you say, on, on the left, people are more likely to be inclined to, to support it because I think people are often on the left, people are more worried about uh, kind of wealth inequality. And I think also, you know, whether you're on the left or on the right, the facts are that wealth inequality is rising. And I think that's the thing we just have to accept. Uh, then whether you think that's a problem uh, is sort of a separate issue. But I think we, we should agree that that is just in terms of the facts, that is true. And you can see that uh, across countries around the world. And in part of that is the fact that interest rates have become very low. And we know that low interest rates tend to push up asset prices. And so I think that's one of the one of the reasons that even on the right, people in the UK have been calling for wealth taxes uh, of some sort, thinking about the taxation of wealth, because we've seen a big increase uh, in the value of assets. A lot of that's been, for example, uh, things like quantitative easing, which is you know a, a kind of macroeconomic policy that's designed to keep the economy going, but it also has distributional consequences. And people are recognizing now that while we might need the macro bit to happen to be, so we can keep the economy going, we also need to deal with the distributional consequences. And that yeah. requires thinking about the taxing, taxation of wealth. Uh, one of wealth taxes are good at raising money uh, and doing it in a way that is sort of obviously more heavily weighing on people with high levels of wealth. It's worth saying if your overall worry is generally rising wealth inequality, a one-off wealth tax is not going to be enough. And so you definitely do need some of those other tools you were talking about. So fixing, in general, the, the taxation of wealth more broadly, uh, which includes things like having more than homeopathic levels of uh, inheritance tax, until we have been planning this conversation, I had not realized that Canada does not have any kind of sensible inheritance tax at all. Uh, right, no Canada. sensible inheritance tax. And yeah. here is a moment in time where you have an opportunity, I think, to address raising revenue, as you say, in a very fair way through a, a credibly one-off wealth tax, but then to do some easier work. I think it should still be on the table, this notion of an annual wealth tax. I think rising extreme wealth inequality is absolutely an issue that we need to tackle, mm -hmm. especially because those in, at the margins of our society are still left behind and we don't have a sufficient social safety net. And there are all sorts of reasons to criticize the status quo where people are left behind and, and others are extremely, extremely well off behind any measure of, of reasonability. But a credibly one-off wealth tax is, is doable. And then there are, at least in Canada, some very obvious areas to address that are related to taxing wealth 
and that would help us address that that growing nature of, of extreme wealth inequality, but wouldn't mean necessarily an annual wealth tax just yet. And inheritance tax seems like the obvious place to, to, to go. Yeah. And in the UK, you mentioned you have an inheritance tax, although you also, as we were exchanging emails, emphasized some of the challenges with the enforceability and the application of that inheritance tax. Yes, I think inheritance taxes have, you know, on the one hand, you may, you may want to say that people who work very hard and amass huge amounts of wealth in their lifetimes sort of in some sense deserve that wealth. And again, I, I use deserving scare quotes here in the sense that people have their own views of what deserving is. But I think it's harder to explain why you think it's really essential and deserving that because someone was born to rich parents, they ought to inherit lots of wealth. And so I think people tend to be more uh, understanding or accepting of the idea that an inheritance tax is important as a part of uh, keeping equality of opportunity, which I think whether you're on the left or on the right, you know, equality of outcome is the thing people argue about. Equality of opportunity is something that I think people are generally all agreed on. We clearly don't have equality of opportunity in a world in which some people get huge amounts of wealth uh, from their parents and other people don't. Uh, so that's a natural reason to have an inheritance tax. The key challenge is, you know, of course, it says you think of an annual wealth tax and inheritance tax as the opposite end of the scale. For an annual wealth tax, the difficulty is that every single year you're trying to get people to value all of their stuff. And as a result of doing that, there's a huge administrative cost. There are other problems along the way, but that's one of the big issues. And so that's why you don't want to do that for a broad swathe of the population. You might want to do it for a very small group, but it's hard to do that for a large share. At the other end, an inheritance tax happens only once. So normally, most countries have relatively high rates because they say, well, you, can't, you don't want to do 1% only at this point, whereas you might have said an annual wealth tax that was half a percent or 1%, which other countries currently have. For an inheritance tax, you typically want a higher rate than that. Um, but the difficulty is because you're doing it at this one point in time, people have a lot of incentive to plan around that one event because there's only one point at which they need to have had all of their ducks lined up in a row and have put stuff into trust or have passed stuff off ahead of time or whatever else. Uh, and so avoidance becomes a big issue at that point because, you know, whereas trying to avoid annually is a bit of a pain because every single year you need to make sure you've done whatever it is you're doing. An inheritance tax, because it's only happening at this one point, of course, some, somewhat uncertain because you don't know when you'll die, but people tend to have a sense for when they need to get their affairs in order. Uh, and you realize that when they do that, they end up being able to find ways around it. And so in the UK, some of the issues, some of the issues are entirely straightforward political issues that we can solve with a stroke of a pen. So there are things like uh, currently you can pass on pensions uh, free of inheritance tax. So people have a strong incentive to save up into pension, which is uh, tax benefit, tax privilege, and then not to spend, not to not to take their pension, but to spend all of the other stuff they have because the pension they can pass on tax free to their kids. And so that seems very odd because we don't think of the tax benefit for pensions being one that is me saving, not for my old age, but for my children's middle age. Um, but that seems to be what we've got. We also have uh, businesses are exempt, uh, small businesses that are closely held are exempt uh, from inheritance tax as is agricultural property. And so you have uh, relatively wealthy people who've never had any history uh, of agricultural work or growing up on a farm or anything like that, suddenly buying up chunks of the countryside uh, so they can get agricultural property relief. As well. So these are, you know, those, these are the kind of things that politicians bring in are badly designed and are relatively straightforward. But then there are some other ones that are harder, which are things like trust, where we, you, you might want to have a system of trusts, which is a way in which people can kind of put money aside for, you know, say some younger child who might be, you know, have uh, a mental or physical illness and you want it to be looked after for them. And so, you know, we have reasons why you might, might want to trust or something like that. But then once you create a system like that, lots of people say, oh, that's great because I can use that and I don't need to have any of those reasons. I just want to use it as a way of reducing my tax bill. In Canada, to my understanding, you have, we do have trusts in estate planning, of course, and for, in some cases, for the reasons you mentioned, people with disabilities and, 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 and more, but 
generally speaking, my understanding is you have where income is paid out of the trust is taxed in the hands of the beneficiaries as at their income tax rates. And then any income that is not paid out to beneficiaries is then taxed in the trust at, at that tax rate as well. So in broad strokes, at least, my call for new taxation measures on the transfer of extreme wealth, including an inheritance tax on a state's valued at over $5 million, in broad strokes, that makes sense. When I was a, a law student, before I, I became a full-fledged lawyer, I worked at a larger firm, they had a big tax department, and I saw firsthand just the amount of energy and effort that goes into estate planning, particularly for wealthy individuals. So governments have to be you know, on guard for what is going to happen with, with well-paid lawyers and, well, and well-paid accountants. As it relates to the third item on this motion that I've put together, changes in the tax treatment of investment income to ensure that it is treated more equitably in relation to employment income earned by working Canadians. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so actually, we um, some other work that I was doing in the UK, also actually with Andy Summers, who was one of the commissioners at the Wealth Tax Commission, um, was looking at the taxation of capital gains specifically. Uh, and so in investment income in the sense of uh, dividend income is taxed at a lower rate uh, already. But capital gains is taxed at a much lower rate than a headline income tax rate. And in the UK, that we show that basically created huge problems uh, because it's already been shown by other people that uh, when you have this kind of gap between capital gains tax rates and income tax rates. There's a strong incentive for people to set up small companies, you know, kind of put their income through a company, keep the money inside the company, and then later on dissolve the company and get the, get the money out of gains rather than paying themselves along the way. Uh, and so that's the kind of thing we've seen happening. And we, we, we did some work showing how extreme that means the uh, rates are, where you have people uh, with, you know, total uh, remuneration of something like £10 million in a, in a single year and they're paying the same average tax rate as someone £15,000. It's just, you know, kind of incredible that you end as up with well. this huge difference. Um, but it's it's the fact that we, we've chosen to have capital gains tax at a lower rate, and then in particular, we had, we've had the special, uh, lo- even lower rate than the headline capital gains tax rate uh, for small businesses that you set up uh, when you sell them off. But it meant, obviously, that people would set them up for the purpose of putting stuff through the business and then dissolving the business afterwards. Um, and so there was a lifetime cap on how much you could do for that. And the thing is, I think something we always try to get across in our work, and I think it's kind of important for campaigners also and for politicians to think about, is that often, I mean, I'm not super keen on people doing these sorts of things, but it's important to remember that these things happen because policymakers make choices and design policy badly. You know, it's not that people, you know, there are, there are clearly people who evade taxes or who do things that are you know, strictly against the rules. But some of these things you know, are completely foreseeable if you talk to anyone who works in this area, they could tell you this is clearly going to happen. And it's not surprising that people are taking advantage of it. And so they're taking advantage of a set of badly designed rules. And so it is important that policymakers, kind of like yourself, that take this stuff seriously and think about, you know, putting forward questions that say, look, we have problems here. We should try and fix them. Uh, rather than sometimes what you get, which is a sort of blaming people for what they're doing, but they're not actually fixing the underlying problem, which is what's needed to stop it happening. You know, it's, it's no good to complain other, about other people abusing the rules unless you change the rules. We're, we're going through a similar conversation as it relates to, you mentioned supports for furloughed workers. Well, in the Canadian context, our wage subsidy program was not only for furloughed workers, but was for active workers. What that has ended up doing is that you have businesses that are profiting a great deal from that government subsidy and then increasing dividends or buying back shares in the context of a pandemic. It is obviously unconscionable. Now, these rules were rolled out very quickly. So, Okay. Not great criticism to the government initially, but 
and this is my government. So, uh, you know, I, I'm overall supportive, but I am quite frustrated that we have yet to revisit those rules and to say that's not what this is for. And we can't allow public funds to be used ultimately yeah. for increased dividends and for share buybacks and criticism to the companies for abusing our goodwill. But I would say greater criticism to the government if we don't actually fix those rules in the end. Because to your point, tax evasion, obviously, against the law, we should crack down on that. But it's up to governments to fix rules that allow for unjustified tax avoidance. Yeah. And it, in Canada, I don't, I don't know what the conversation is like in the UK as it relates to treating investment income more equitably to employment income. In Canada, it seems to be a conversation we're having more seriously in some ways. Our capital gains inclusion is 50% the rate of right. uh, income tax treatment. And that obviously presents great unfairness. You, you, you've already indicated why, even when you look at the treatment of dividend income, I know people who you know, passively invest and they pay a lower tax rate than my employees. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I, and I think instinctively Canadians understand that unfairness when it is described to them and when the rules are described to them as they are. So I think there is, again, when I come back to that notion of political feasibility, when I lay out these three measures, in some ways, I'm sure I will be accused of, you know, all taxes are bad and tax and spend liberal or whatever the, the accusation might be. But I can credibly say it, you as, as one expert, but there are many others that were part of your report and there are many others in Canada, but a credibly one-off wealth tax, taxation measures on wealth transfers, including inheritance tax and treating investment income more equitably to employment income. These are all measures that make economic sense. Yeah, and I just, just on your last point of the, of the treating uh, returns from wealth similarly to returns from labor income. I think, I mean, we have a rightish wing conservative government in, in power at the moment in the UK. And they are very seriously looking at this idea of equalizing capital gains tax treatment with income tax rates. So we uh, produced some work on it last year. The, the Office of Tax and Creation was asked to look at it, which is a kind of body in the UK. Uh, both Andy and I were involved in uh, the reports from, that have come out of that. Uh, and they recommended that we equalize the treatment and the chancellor is currently seriously considering it is, is what is being widely reported. We don't have a, I mean, obviously these kind of measures aren't announced until they're announced. Um, but I think it, it is widely expected. I think in the UK, when you, when you read what any newspaper is saying or what any com- commentator is saying, uh, that either at this budget or the next one, the, there will be an equalization of these things. I think it's, it's been clear now that it's, it's causing a problem. It's not really sensible or fair. And in, a, in an environment in which governments are suddenly having to take a good hard look at how they're raising money and what they're doing and you know in which the majority of the population have been you know badly squeezed by the crisis governments having to think how are we going to raise money and at the same time not being able to just say well we're going to just you know knock up uh, the sales tax rate or the income tax rate by a little bit and just hit everybody because everyone's been so squeezed already and so actually thinking well where are there already unfairnesses where are there already problems that we should have been correcting anyway that should have been dealt with just because they didn't make sense but now also a useful way to raise revenue at a time when we particularly need to raise revenue. Um, I think, you know, the equalization in general, the equalization point is one in which in normal times you could have said, well, we can, we can equalize by reducing labor tax rates or, you know, equal, you know, reducing labor tax rates a bit and increasing capital tax rates. Clearly this is an environment in which we're most governments are need, thinking they're going to need to raise money in the, in the coming years. Uh, and so because of that, I think the equalization conversation only goes in one direction, but I think everyone would support or everyone who kind of thinks about the kind of structure of these things would support the idea that these things should be equal, even if you know we can then argue out what the right rate should be. Because I don't, I, you know, as much as you don't want to hurt growth by uh, you know hurting the business owner who has capital who's trying to invest and do things, 
you don't want to hurt that same business owner by making it expensive for them to employ people to do stuff. And you don't want to encourage them to say, oh, it's, it's so expensive to employ people. I'd much rather employ machines and not employ actual labor because they're so expensive to hire people. That doesn't seem like a sensible structure either. So that's not a good way to design a tax system. And so, you know, we should, we should just not do those, those things that we all, we all understand are a bad idea. Well, also the fact that we treat passive and active investment completely the same in this rubric makes no sense to yeah. me either. But my last question, back to wealth taxes and annual wealth taxes, one-off wealth taxes, you mentioned one of the challenges to an annual wealth tax is this incredible administrative burden to assessing wealth every year, increases in wealth on an annual basis. And that can be addressed in part by having a much higher threshold where you have a smaller category of citizens who are affected by it. Could it also be addressed on the, on the other end of the scale, you've pointed to an inheritance tax and it's one off at the end of one's life. And so then there are challenges on planning. And so mm -hmm. it's almost the inverse in, in some respects. Did you and your team examine in any way not an annual wealth tax and not a yeah, recurring tax, wealth taxes that are less frequent. That, yeah, that are maybe every five years or every seven years. And and what was your what was your conclusion in that regard? Yeah, so we looked at the you know as you say, an annual wealth tax is just a particular example of a recurring wealth tax that happens to be based on what our usual fiscal cycles are. We looked at the idea that you know you could think about doing the valuation bit less frequently than every year. There are a couple of challenges to doing that. So you probably want to do it. You know, there's no point doing. It. Every two years is not that much more of a savings. So you're thinking sort of more like every five years. The practical problem is if you still go for a fairly large share of the population, you need a lot of valuers around to suddenly do valuations, and they need to come into business suddenly every fifth year and not anywhere else. And then you say, okay, well, the ob obvious thing is just to have you know one fifth of the population every year. That's kind of straightforward. Now, of course, that leads to the natural avoidance that the year that I'm being assessed, my wife suddenly has all the value of all our stuff, and I have nothing. And then of right. course, a year later, she gives it all back to me. And when she comes around for assessment, she has nothing, and then we go back and forth again. So that's not a good idea. Um, so, you know, it, it, the, although in principle, it sounds like quite a nice idea, it does end up being quite hard. And I mean, one of the things is just, you know, practically when you think about the valuation industry, just having enough values around to do stuff, but then also have them something to do if it's that infrequent. Um, so, you, I mean, you can do it. it. It's not impossible, but it's not. It's not as easy. It's, it's not as easy as you might think. And it's also once you get to larger periods of time, you end up getting exactly the same issue that you have with inheritance tax, which is, you know, suppose you value my stuff every 10 years. That's a really nice target for me to go, well, every ninth year, I need to make sure I organize my life and okay. make sure that by the time I get to year 10, uh, my, my paper wealth looks relatively low. But that's the real challenge. And so I think, in a sense, for annual wealth taxes, the place at which you can kind of, the, the solution to that, in a sense, is, and it, it's not a cost-free solution, it's not without any problems, but is if you, want, if you really want an annual wealth tax, the only place where it really helps is at the very top. You don't want to start and say, you know, where could I have an annual wealth tax? And then say, is it a good idea for something? You want to start with, what am I trying to achieve? Now, what an annual wealth tax can help you achieve that other taxes can't is if you are worried specifically about an increase in wealth concentration at the very top, then you need an annual wealth tax. And you need an annual wealth tax because suppose that you have whatever rate, say 50%, a 50% uh, tax rate on increases in wealth, so a 50% capital gains tax rate effectively. The thing is, we know that the higher your level of wealth, the faster the growth of your wealth. So someone who has relatively low levels of wealth you know, if you think of someone who's at kind of very normal levels of wealth in Canada right now, they're probably saving money only kind of in their bank at 1% or whatever, half a percent, whatever they can get in, the, in a bank in Canada. They have a bit of a slightly, maybe a slightly higher rate from whatever their house price growth is if they have a house. And that's kind of the level of stuff they're getting. They maybe they've got something in the stock market. When you get to much higher levels of wealth, you have much more of your wealth that you can put into higher risk things that have higher returns. 
and we did some talk and we did as part of the commission we talked to some very wealthy people just to get a sense for some of these things and you know people are not even in the current environment where interest rates are pretty low and people are worried about in normal people are worried about being able to uh get returns at any high rate you know saying four or five percent that feels like kind of straightforward to some of these people and so when you have that big difference in growth rates, and there's also good academic work showing this pattern across other countries, so there's good work in Norway showing this and work showing this in the US. When you see that kind of pattern of growth rate, it means that you know, if you have something where you're taking away you know, half of the growth every single year from some people, the actual level of growth is still going to be much higher at the very top end. And so you will end up just seeing kind of runaway concentrate, increasing concentration at the top end. And so if that's what you're worried about, and that's a totally legit thing to be worried about, but if that's what you're worried about, then you're not going to solve that problem only with the other things you've mentioned. You're going to need something like an annual wealth tax. Or you're, you know, the alternative is to say, I'm not worried about the fact there will be this increase in concentration all through somebody's life, as long as I'm going to make sure I get it before they pass it on to their kids, so that it's not that that concentration goes on forever. It's just it goes on over somebody's lifetime. And then before they pass it on to their kids, a reasonable chunk yeah. of it's coming back to the state. Well, my thinking was, in laying out the three items in this motion, one, as it relates to wealth taxation, show a wealth tax, present a wealth tax that is one off because there's gonna be greater, broader support from all quarters and show that it can be done and revisit the conversation about whether an annual wealth tax is also required to address that rising extreme wealth inequality that concerns me too, after you've then addressed the other ways of taxing wealth that are clearly lower hanging fruit and clearly need to be done, which are points two and three as it relates to inheritance taxation and investment income. I don't know what your politics are in, in the UK, but assume you are a Canadian member of parliament of, you know, unaffiliated and you're sitting beside me in the chamber and this comes up for a vote. Do you vote for it? Definitely. I mean, I think all of these three things, I think any, anyone uh, kind of wherever your politics, I think you can vote on better taxation of capital, which is your kind of third point. The second point is really also better taxation of capital. Trying to have an inheritance tax is, I mean, kind of common across countries around the world, including ones that are relatively right leaning as well as left leaning one. And I think you know, even if you're on the right of politics, you're usually worried about equality of uh, opportunity, at least. If you're on the left, you're probably worried about uh, equality of outcome as well. But both of those are reasons why you want to uh, deal with inheritance tax issues. Uh, and a one-off wealth tax is just better than the alternative ways that you're going to raise money in the near future. So yeah, I, I would vote for all three of those. Great. Well, I, I appreciate your time. And I very much appreciate, I don't know if you ever thought that in publishing this commission, you'd end up speaking to a Canadian member of parliament who's tabling a motion based on your work. But honestly, I, I very I much appreciate your work. And I appreciate people who are much smarter than me who make my job easier. And you happen to be one of them. So I, I appreciate the time and, and, oh. and your work. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Uncommons. As I think through these issues of wealth inequality and taxing wealth, if there are others you think I should reach out to, do please send me a note. You may have noticed for those paying close attention that in my conversation with Arun, I mentioned a 1% tax on assets over $5 million. When we crunched the numbers with the library, it came back that that particular tranche, that 1% tax on net wealth between five and $10 million accrued about two and a half billion dollars, but it would be applied to about 130,000 some odd families. And we looked at it and we thought as it relates to the administrative costs with a relatively small fraction of the total $70 billion coming from that particular bracket, it made better sense to drop that bracket and really target our efforts at the, the upper echelon. And that change was made after my conversation with Professor Advani actually. As I say, I really appreciate you joining and as I say, I really appreciate you joining. 
Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes. Please do leave a positive review if you like what we're doing. And otherwise, until next time.